Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. How are you guys? Good? Yeah. Um, thank God for the sun being out, at least it is right now. Uh, I did a wedding yesterday. Listen, you hipsters, you got to stop with the weddings in the middle of fields in the middle of summer, okay? Everyone suffers for your cool pics. Go there the day before, dressed up, take your pictures, do what you have to do, and then have your wedding inside for the love of all that's good and decent. If I do another wedding in the middle of a field on a hot, muggy summer day wearing a black suit... It poured like Noah was going to come floating by (laughs) for about 30 minutes. And then for 40 minutes, the sun in all its glory rose and baked the earth (laughs) until it was time for me to walk out and stand in the middle of that field with no shade and perform a wedding. I was sweating places I didn't even know you could sweat. Like the bottoms of my feet had sweat pouring from them. Um... But, but, but you know what's amazing about, um, and, and I'm, I, lo- I, I love doing weddings um, it, for, for a lot of moments, but, but there's one thing I always notice, and I talk about it a lot at, at the weddings that I do, is, is there, there's this moment where, you know, everything, everything has come into place, and now it's time for the bride to enter. And you, I just love watching the face of the groom when, you know, at the end of that aisle, field, cow path, whatever it is, she appears. <laughs> no, seriously, though, like, there's this, there's this thing where, whoa, I'm ringing. Um, there's this thing where, where the, the, the bride appears, and you look at the groom, and he is about to say no to 3.5 billion women. He's about to say no to every other woman in the world. And there's not one thought of that in his mind in that moment. Because he's just staring into the face of and looking at the one he's about to say yes to. And it so reminds me of Jesus. Of what we find with Jesus when, when it's just, just this thing of I get to say yes to you. And in that yes, there's a billion no's. But my life is not focused on the no's. Because of the joy of the one that I'm saying yes to. And it's like, it's like, you know, everything else can, you can, you can not know everything. But if you know this one thing, like there's so many things they don't know when they're getting married. Everybody that's been married for more than a year laughs when I say it. The people that have been married for 20 really know it. I've been married for 17. There were so many things I didn't know when I got married. But I knew the one thing I needed to know. And it's like that with, with Jesus. It's like, I may not understand or know everything, but I know this one thing. I know who he is. I know he died for me. I know he loves me. I know he called me according to his purposes. I know he filled me with his spirit. I know that he's for me, that he's not against me. It's so important that we know who he is. And so Jesus said to Peter, remember he's talking to Peter and he says, he says, Peter, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, well, some say you're this and some say you're that. And you're an apostle, you're a prophet, you're a good man. Uh, um, and you're a teacher, or these different things. But, but Peter, who do you say that I am? 
Because really that's what matters. Because you can have opinions from everybody in the world. You, you can have everyone telling you who he is, and they could even be right. But who you think he is and how you see him is what matters. Think about it. You have two thieves on a cross. You have one on one side. You have one on the other. And you have the Savior of the world hanging between them. Two people looking at the same man, Jesus, nailed to a cross for their lives. One looks at him and out of selfishness says, save yourself. And uh, you notice how there's always that twist there. It sounds like it's not totally selfish. Save yourself and us. He didn't care about Jesus. He didn't really care about Jesus saving himself. He just wanted, well, if you can save yourself, then you could save me. I want what you can do for me. I don't really care about you. Save yourself and us. And the other one looks over and says, don't you understand who this is? Don't you see that he did nothing wrong and yet he's nailed to this cross? One season for who he is, the other season for what he can do. Jesus looks to the one who sees him for who he is and says, today you'll be with me. But the way you see Jesus matters. Who you say that he is matters. Who he is to you matters. If he's a good man, then you receive from him what you receive from a good man. If he's just a teacher, then you receive from him what you receive from a teacher. If he's a prophet, you receive from him what you receive from a prophet. But if he's the Christ, if he's the Lord, this is why, remember the same Peter, he's preaching now to the people who killed Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, who, who do men say that I am? And, and Peter gives him all the responses of the day that people would say about Jesus. He says, but Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Who do you say that I am, Peter? And every, every one of us, he would ask the same question. Every one of us at some point has to come to this place in our lives where, where we're looking at Jesus and seeing him for who he is, and we say, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And in saying you're the Christ, we're saying nothing else is. In saying Jesus is Lord, you're saying there's nothing else that's Lord. There's nothing else that's master. There's nothing else that I'll give my life to, that I will serve and submit to and yield to and yield my will to, but you, because you're the Christ. It's Jesus standing at the end of the aisle, and you look at him, and you're saying yes to him, and there's all these no's that you're saying in that one yes, but those aren't your focus, because if the no's are your focus, eventually you'll run out of reasons to say no, but if he, the yes, is your focus, you'll never stop running out of reasons, you'll never run out of reasons to keep saying yes to him. Because over and over again, you see him for who he is. You see the majesty and the beauty of Jesus. You see this man hanging on a cross for our sins, taking what we deserve so that we could have what he de deserved. Becoming sin so that we could become righteous. We understand that. Like, that's a huge deal. He didn't act sinful so you could act righteous. He became sin so you could become righteous. The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There was no act. And so Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gets excited and says, blessed are you, Simon. 
For I tell you that flesh and blood, in other words, the people around you, this answer didn't come in response to anyone or anything around you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. And sometimes we find ourselves in, in situations and we have to ask ourselves, where did my response come from? Would, would Jesus look at me when I respond to him or to a situation, to other people, and say, blessed are you, Roy? Because this isn't coming from flesh and blood, but my Father who's in heaven gave you this revelation. Peter later is talking to these same people who crucified Jesus. A whole bunch of them are gathered there. The ones who said, Hosanna, Hosanna. See, the way they saw him changed in just three days. Why? Because what they were looking for didn't happen. We've got to be really careful that we don't build an expectation of what it looks like for God to come into our lives. And then when he doesn't come in the way that we expect, we turn our back on him and say, well, he must not be him. Because these people were expecting Jesus to come and be the conquering king who overthrew the government and finally set them free from the oppression of Rome. And, and they, he was going to be the one who rode in on, this, on, on a horse and delivered them and saved them. And they're ready to go to battle. And so as he comes, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're all excited. Why? They're responding to flesh and blood. They're responding to what they see. Because what they were saying was true, but the revelation that was causing them to say it wasn't truth. They didn't actually see him for who he was. If they did, they wouldn't have turned their backs on him when he didn't turn out to be what they expected. You can be saying the right things. If what you're saying isn't coming from a revelation of the Father, it won't hold you when what you expected to happen doesn't happen. Listen to me. You can say the right things. You can have everything nailed down smoothly, and your response could sound so good, it could even be truth. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Three short days later, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. All that happened in three days is Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do. How easy can the Hosanna be stole from our lips if life doesn't line up the way that we think it should for just three days? Why? Because the revelation didn't come from the Father. It came from what they were seeing. It was flesh and blood. It was things that were told to them by other people. It was stories they heard about the Messiah that was coming. It was all these things. And listen, you can read the word and it can lead you to truth. But truth is a man named Jesus. And apart from him, all the word in the world will not change your life. You could stand on a street and lay your coat down and shout Hosanna one day. And three days later, ask a man to kill him. If the revelation isn't actually from God, and doesn't change the way that you see. That's why Jesus was so excited when Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, blessed are you, Simon, for I tell you, the flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven saying, listen, not only are you saying the right thing, Peter, but the revelation where it's coming from is the right place. And that's something that will keep you, even if you have failures, it'll bring you back, because there's a revelation in your heart that's greater than what you see, Peter. 
You're not saying this because of what you see in a moment. You're about to see some things that are going to shake that, but I've prayed for you that your faith would remain. What's he saying? saying, listen, once you get that revelation from the Father and you see him for who he is, there may be times where things happen and you act in a way that you wish you didn't. I promise you, Peter regretted denying Jesus three times, but it didn't change the fact that what he had in his heart was revealed to him by the Father. And when he saw Jesus, he said, it's the Lord. Jumps in the water, can't keep himself from getting to Jesus. Why? Because there was a revelation that was made to him that wasn't pointed out by flesh and blood. What he said to Jesus wasn't a response to what he saw. It was a response to what the Father was saying. And that will keep you in a place long after what you see changes. So now he's talking to a bunch of people who crucified Jesus. And they say, he says to him, he says, now you see this Jesus whom you crucified is both Savior and Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you guys are actually seeing him for who he is. What's their response? What must we do to be saved? When what you see isn't determined by what you see, but by what the Spirit of God is revealing, it'll actually change your heart to a place where you say, Listen, Hosanna, kill him, what must we do to be saved? And all that changed from those three instances was what they were seeing and where it was being revealed from. When the Spirit of God reveals something, it will actually change your heart and your response will be made, not based on what you're seeing, not based on what people are saying, but by what you're looking at. Come on. I had a different message ready, and I wrote down some notes, and I'm just going to try and preach off this for real quick because I feel like that's what I'm supposed to do. So, so turn your Bibles real quick to um, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. I've quoted a lot of Scripture already, but we'll read some so that it's official. So in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51... Jesus is, is, um, is getting ready to, it says in the days we're approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command down fire to come down on them from heaven and consume them? But he turned to rebuke them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you're of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive, that it's sharp, that, it, that it's quick, that it cuts, God, and divides, that, that it takes what we thought and cuts away and leaves who you are. And I ask that as I speak today, as we hear, Holy Spirit, you open our ears and our minds and our hearts that we could hear and know and receive. That the seed of your word, God, would produce fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so here's the disciples, and they're traveling with Jesus. And he it says, hey, i got to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. How many of you know if Jesus is determined to go somewhere, he's going to go there? All right? Like, like, there's nothing, like people saying, well, you can't come through our land doesn't mean Jesus isn't going to go. How, how quick are we to abandon our plans when people don't agree with what we're doing and try to say, like, think about this. 
Jesus says, okay, I'm here and I need to go there. And the quickest way is to go through here. So he sends some messengers on ahead to let them know he's coming. And they say, no, we don't want you. The Samaritans wanted nothing to do with the Jews. They didn't want you in their country. And if you're going to Jerusalem where we really hate, we don't even want you to have the ease of coming through. So go around. They, 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 this is where their hearts were at. And Jesus didn't say, oh, I guess I won't go to Jerusalem. He says, okay, I'll just go another way. Listen, he'll try to come through the way that he originally intends. But if you resist him, he'll say, okay, I'm still going to go there. I'll just go a different route. You're not going to stop his plan. You just miss out on seeing and being part of it. They didn't stop him from going to Jerusalem. They just missed being part of where he was going and what he was doing. And so he says, they send messengers. The messengers come back and they say, they, won't, they, they, they want nothing to do with us. They won't let us come through. And so James and John decide the best course of action, the best way to respond to this is... is do you want us to kill every single person? Because like, think about it. He says, you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? We, we, we laugh about that, you know, because it's, it's kind of comical. But in that moment, their genuine response to this offense was, should we kill everyone? And they're trying to get Jesus' permission to do it. You notice Jesus didn't get offended? The disciples got offended for him. We could get offended for people a whole lot, sometimes more easily than they get offended themselves. Be really careful that you don't pick up an offense for somebody. You don't say, well, I can't believe that they said that to you. I can't believe they did that to you. I can't believe they treated it. I can't believe this. I can't believe that. And suddenly we're so offended for the person. And the person, in this case, Jesus is sitting there with nothing but love in his heart for the Samaritans. He has not an ounce of offense in him. He's not angry with them. He's not rebuking them. He's not wanting them to call down fire. He wants to love them. He wants to save them. And he know, this is what's in his heart. And he realizes the only reason they're saying that is because they don't understand why I came. And now they're offended, and they're responding out of offense rather than out of love. At some point, we have to ask ourselves when we are, when we're in, in the actions of our lives, am I responding to love, or am I responding to anything but love? Look at 1 Corinthians you know, chapter 13, when it talks about love. And just, just realize that like this gospel is meant to crush everything that's not him. Like it's not, it's not situational. It's not for the super Christians. It's not just for some people or just for, yeah, but listen, if you have a yeah, but that comes into your mind when you hear the word of God, stop what you're doing and realize this is what you're saying. You're saying, I know what the God of the universe said, but I also know something that he doesn't know. So let me tell you why what he's saying doesn't apply to me. You can, you can powder coat it, sugar coat it. Yeah, but, oh, but everybody, and I'm only in this. No, listen, every one of our excuses are gone when we realize that Jesus came as a man led by the Spirit and filled by the Spirit. He was tempted in every way common, uh, every way which is common to man. Yet the Bible tells us that God cannot be tempted by sin. He came as a man. Was he fully God? He never stopped being fully God, but he set his deity aside. He had to, or these scriptures can't line up. There's no way that God can be tempted by sin, yet Jesus was tempted in every way that was common to man. He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the enemy. He did it as a man. He didn't do it as God. He did it as a man, being led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, coincidentally, that we're supposed to be led by and empowered by. 
So listen to what 1 Corinthians says, and, and, and then we sometimes need to just be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, but my actions, my words, my attitudes, the way that I treat people, the way I respond, are they, be, are they in response to anything but love? Because love is patient. There goes my driving. There was no love in the way that I drove. I had zero patience. And we talked about this last week, and we laugh about that. But the truth of the matter is, is I had an attitude that I had allowed to creep into my life where I segregated a portion of my life from the gospel and, in effect, told Jesus, I love you, and I'll follow you, and I'll serve you until I set into my car. You go ahead and meet me there. I want to do this on my own, and I'm going to do this my way. And it's the truth. And listen, we can laugh about, you know, driving and road. Here's the, here's the problem with that, is the, the more we give ourselves permission to act less than Christ-like in one area, it'll start allowing us to give ourselves permission to ask, like, less, act less than Christ-like in other areas. If we don't catch it, it will spread. It's never content to just occupy one place. Both kingdoms want to invade and completely take over your life. And the one that will actually take over all of your life is the one you give space to. You can't live divided. One's advancing while the other's shrinking continually. Amen. Love is patient. So if I find myself responding to anything, if the disciples would have asked themselves in that moment, just think about this if they have this filter of love. The Samaritans don't want us to come. Should we kill them? The second they heard that the Samaritans didn't want them to come through, their thought went to, should we kill them, Jesus? Should we just kill them all? Not God is long-suffering towards us and not willing that any would perish, but all would be saved. So there's no patience. Love is kind and is not jealous. Like we, we, we read these things. And it's like this flowery list, and we have these, you know, now the, the, the cool thing is, is to have, like, you know, paintings in your house with cursive script, and we hang, and it looks beautiful in your home, but the problem is it was never meant to be hung on a wall. It was meant to be lived in your heart. Like, it's cool to hang it on the wall as long as it's a reminder that that's what my heart should look like, not just to have an ideal, not just to have something that, 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 that sounds good in theory but doesn't actually play out in my life, that I give myself permission to live less than because, and fill in the blank with every circumstance that you want to, none of them would hold up when you stand before a holy God and you realize out of love he gave his son to die for me. What excuse did I have to live less than that? So love is patient. Am I, am I being patient? If I'm not, then the rest of my response is not going to flow from a place of love. It can't because love is patient. And if I'm not living patiently, if I'm not being long-suffering, then there's no chance that the rest of what I'm doing is flowing from a pure place of love. So stop the car. Abandon that plan. Go back and find his heart. Because I promise you what's about to flow isn't going to be love. Love is kind and is not jealous. You know, you know, the Bible says if you have envy and selfish ambition in your heart, there resides every evil thing. And he says, and if you, these things are in you, don't lie. Like, don't lie to yourself about it and act like it's not there because it'll still be there. It'll still be controlling what you do. You'll just fool yourself into thinking it's not there and you'll be living a life that's contrary to what you know you're called to live while denying the reason the whole time, thereby insulating yourself from the answer. 
Love is, is, is kind and is not jealous. If I'm acting out of jealousy, I'm not acting out of love. I'm not acting out of Christ. And it doesn't matter what was done that I would say caused me to act this way. He doesn't say unless. You realize there's no excuse in here. No wiggle room. Why? Because everything he's called us to, his grace, if we will yield our life to it, would empower us to walk in. He's not a frustrating father that sits in heaven giving commands to a bunch of children that are incapable of actually doing what he's calling them to do so they can be frustrated and then live a miserable life. He's a loving father that says, if you would just live the life that I've called you to live, you would see. If you taste, you would see that I'm good. But you have to actually open your mouth and put the fruit in. You can't just talk about the fruit for you to taste and see that it's good. It's not okay to talk about living a life of love apart from actually living a life of love. You can talk about it, but you won't actually experience the goodness of it until you give yourself to it in every situation. It's quiet in here. It's okay. Love doesn't brag and is not arrogant. If I'm boastful, if I have arrogance to me, it's not love. I can call it what I want. I can call it confidence. There's a line between confidence and arrogance. Confidence is sure that I am who he said that I am. Arrogance is I want you to be sure that I am who I say that I am. No, come on, that's the difference. Confidence is me saying I believe that I really am who he says that I am. There's nothing arrogant about that. In fact, do you realize that the most arrogant thing you can do is call yourself something less than what he died and called you to become? You, that's, that is the epitome of arrogance. Well, you know, I'm just a filthy this. No, you're not. Your, your righteousness was as filthy rags, so he came and he exchanged and gave you his righteousness so that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And you're now saying that the things that I've done define me more than what he did for me and who he's called me. That's arrogant. Confidence says, I am who I am because of the grace of God. I believe that he really did become sin so that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's confidence. That's me saying that I really believe that I am who he says that I am. Arrogance is, I want to make sure that you believe that I am who I say that I am. I have an idea about myself, and I want to make sure that what you think of me lines up to what I think of me. I don't have to prove anything. A confident person has nothing to prove. Nothing. Since Jesus made himself of no reputation. In other words, it didn't matter to him if people thought highly of him or not. He was here to love. People could make their decisions. He wasn't here to convince anybody. He wasn't arrogant. He just wanted to love them. He wanted to convince them of the Father and the goodness of God. That's why he said, if you've seen me, you've seen... He didn't even want people to start saying things about him. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He let them know, the things I do, I only do what I see the Father doing. These words that I speak are not mine, but the Father who's in heaven. For God so loved the world, he made sure they realized, Jesus says this, he makes sure that they realize, I'm here because the Father loves you. I came to reveal the Father. He said this over and over again. So it's not arrogant. It's not boasting. If you find any of these in your response to people, to situations, to life, or to the Father, if you find permission for any of these things, then stop what you're doing. Go back to his feet and ask him to change your heart and realize it can't be coming from him because it's not flowing from love and he is love. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. 
That means if my response to you is out of what I want versus what's best for you, it's not love. It doesn't seek after its own. That's why Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you must first deny yourself. Why? Because love doesn't seek after its own. I'm not in this for me. It's why Jesus could stand before people that he came to save that accused him and say to them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why? He's not there for himself. He has no need to prove anything. He's there to love. He's not in it for himself. If he's in it for himself, he never would have made it to the cross. If he's in it for himself, he would have gave up long before he got to the cross because he would have looked around and thought everybody around me is a failure after everything that I've done. It doesn't seek after its own. It's not provoked. What does it take? What does it take for you to go from Hosanna to crucify him. What does it go from to, t- to, to go from you're ever aware of me, ever aware of me? Hey, get in your own lane. Now, see, it's okay, and we laugh when we talk about road rage because it's this innocent thing, but what provokes us, what causes us to treat people less than loving, what causes things to come from our mouths that are so far below the standard of love that Jesus set? It says love's not provoked. Some, people, some versions add easily. No, it says love is not provoked, meaning what? It doesn't respond to any exterior thing. It always responds only to itself, to love. Everything Jesus did was in response to the love he had for people, not to what they were doing. Come on. Here's the big one. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. I talk about this in marriage counseling continually. If you're keeping score, it's not love. Period. If your response is to what someone did wrong, you're not responding in love. Because it doesn't take account of a wrong suffered. We give ourselves so much permission to act less than Christ-like. All it takes is someone else acting less than Christ-like to us. And all we're proving is that the gospel hasn't changed me any more than it's changed you. Because as long as you act Christ-like to me, I have no problem being Christ-like to you. But you act less than Christ-like, and I give myself permission to respond in the same way that I'm being treated, proving that the gospel is only as good as the person around me and their ability to live it out. And I'm not changed. I'm just a chameleon. If you're green, I'll be green. Brown, I'll be brown. And then we wonder why so many relationships are so damaged. Because the very thing that's needed in that moment, the answer is cut off and abandoned the second I take account of what you've done wrong and give myself permission to treat you differently because you treated me less than Christ like. Because you acted in a way that you shouldn't.
Come on. It's the truth. This, 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 this list here is not like on your best day super Christian behavior. And we can justify things. But the only excuses that should be valid here on earth are ones that will be valid when we stand before him. Well, God, if you would have, then I wouldn't have. How many of us are going to find a reason to accuse him when we stand before him on that day? Why do we give ourselves permission now? doesn't mean we, don't, we just ignore everything that happens. It means we don't let what happens to us change the way that we respond when people do things to us. And we make sure that what we're responding to is love that we have for them, not offense that we're holding us. Because if we have offense in us, we have to deal with that long before we can actually be loving and help somebody. That's why Jesus said, listen, don't try to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Well, leaving the plank in yours. He didn't say you can't take a splinter out of your brother's eye. He's just saying, listen, deal with the glaring thing that's in your eye that you should see first before you worry about trying to help somebody else. Otherwise, you got a bunch of people blind running around stabbing each other in the eye trying to help each other. That's what happens when offended people then try to lead people into being Christ-like. You're offended and angry and bitter and using the Word of God to beat me over the head with when you haven't even dealt with what the Word of God wants to deal with in you. Jesus said, you blind guides, when you do this, you both end up in a ditch. It's the blind leading the blind. It's the person with a plank in their eye that's harboring offense, talking to the person with a sliver in their eye about what they did that offended them. How's that going to work? How does that fix anything? And how's that look when you hold it up to the model of Jesus, who looks out at the people that nailed him to the cross and says, Father, don't hold their sins against them? How many of our arguments... And fights could withstand being held to the lens of love. This is not to like, this should never, this shouldn't feel like, oh, it's beating me up. This should feel like, man, this is calling me to a place of freedom where I never, ever have to find myself living less than this standard right here. Because if he called me to live this way always, that means there's nothing that can be done to me that has the power to keep me from living this way if I would just but yield myself to his spirit. There's freedom in that. There's excitement in that. There's joy in that because now I'm set free from you. I don't have to live my life in response to the way that you've treated me one more day. I can live my life in response to the way he's treated me every single day and then I can love you from that place. And if you do something that's less than Christ-like, I'll model Christ to you to show you what it looks like in the face of what you're doing. Why? Because here's the deal. Think about this. So Stephen is preaching to the Pharisees. And he's telling them all about Jesus. And he's showing them through the prophecies and through the Old Testament, the New Testament, who Jesus was. And then telling them about the fact that they killed him. And they're getting so angry. They're gnashing their teeth and they're bitter. And Stephen's just sitting there with love in his heart. He's not saying these things to set them straight. He's not saying these things to beat them up. He's saying these things because he loves them and wants them to see who Jesus is. And because it's the truth that sets people free. And they need the truth in this moment, even though it's not feeling good to their flesh. And so he's telling them about Jesus. And they they, they just have murder in their eyes. They've got stones in their hands. And they go and they lay their coats at, at, a, at, a, at a Pharisee named Saul's feet. And he approves that they can stone Stephen to death. And he's watching Stephen. He's watching him. And, and Stephen is getting ready to be stoned. And, and they're, they're coming at him. And they're gnashing. They're grinding their teeth. They're so angry. And they have nothing but murder in their eyes. They have stones in their hands. They have hatred in their heart. And they come at him. And Stephen knows in this moment, this is going to cost me my life. And all he can think about in that moment is, I want to spend eternity with every one of these people. So, Father, 
don't hold their sin against them. So now all of a sudden, it's not just Jesus on the cross. It's Stephen on the street in the market. Now it's accessible to everybody. Now it's a standard that says that wasn't just for Jesus, the Son of God, when he was on the cross. Because Stephen, a man filled with the same spirit that filled and anointed Jesus, stood before a murderous crowd and responded in the same way that Jesus did. Leaving all of us with zero excuse. Think about this. They want to kill him. They hate what he's saying so much that all they can think is, we have to get rid of him. And he's looking at them and all he can think is, Father, I want to see every one of them for eternity. What if he gives himself permission to act less than loving in that moment? He tries to call down fire. Shouts, look what you've done. I wonder if in that moment, there wasn't a seed sown into the heart of a man named Saul who saw what true love looked like, who would one day write these words. I wonder if Saul didn't sit there and watch, waiting for the breaking point. You know, because you can say, Father, don't hold their sins against them, and, and maybe, they'll, maybe they'll see that I love them and they won't kill me. But when the stones actually start flying, it proves whether what you're saying was in response to what was happening or in response to something that was actually in your heart. I wonder if Saul wasn't watching to see like how many stones it would take for Stephen to break and love himself more than he loved them. And I wonder if he just kept waiting and waiting and waiting and then all of a sudden realized he's not moving. He actually meant it. And I wonder if that didn't sow a seed into his heart that there's a greater love than I've ever known. I wonder if he was thinking about that when he wrote these words. Come on, that had to make an impact on him. I wonder if when the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to write these words, he didn't have Stephen's picture in his head thinking, that's what love looks like. He was patient with them. It said he sat there and explained the whole Bible to him. He was kind. He did it because he cared about them, not because he had a need to be right. He was about as long-suffering as it gets. He loved his own life, not unto death. He didn't take into account a wrong suffered. He didn't, when the first stone hit him, say, and now you've done it. Oh, come on. Listen, I'm going to close up with this. I want us to be sober about this and think about this for a minute. This is not just like some nice suggestion that we put on a board that we hang in our house. This is actually the description of who we're to become. Because the goal of our instruction is love. So, Stephen doesn't act unbecomingly. He's not seeking after his own. He's certainly not seeking after his own. If he's seeking after his own, he's out of it the first time they start picking up stones. He says, okay, fine, have it your way. You can go to hell. Literally. If he's in it for himself, 
While he's, he said, Stephen, a man full of spirit, was performing signs and wonders, right? And when everyone's crowding around, he's performing signs and wonders. Everything's good. Everybody loves him. He's Stephen. He has a name in the community. That feels good. If he's in it for himself, the minute they pick up stones, he realizes, oh, wait a minute. This doesn't end well for me. I'm going to protect myself, and I'm going to get out of here. They can all go to hell. But he doesn't. Why? Because it's coming from a place of love, and love doesn't seek after its own. Stephen's not seeking after his own. Because he, maybe he really believes that as the Father sent me into the world, so I've also sent you. And Saul's watching. The man who would write this description of love is watching this happen. It's not provoked. The first stone, the last stone, nothing provoked him. He never picked up one stone and threw it back. Just think about that for a minute. I mean, it's, it's so easy in our minds because we've heard these stories to just kind of pass over them. Yeah, Stephen was stoned. He was a martyr, all this stuff. I'm not saying God's calling you to a place of being stoned, but I am saying he's called you to a place of probably less than that, and maybe you've picked up stones and threw them back. Maybe I have. I'm saying that if Jesus is the standard, and then we see a man like Stephen actually follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then that means it's possible for every person who would come after that to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. There's no yeah, but in here. It's not provoked. He doesn't say, well, I've taken all I can take. How long do you think I can take this for? He doesn't just, he's not okay when it's just the little stones. Now it's the big ones. And all right, now it's gone too far. You know, I I let you throw this stone and that stone and that stone. That one hurt. That one really hurt. This one really hurt. And now you've hit me here. And I, you know what? I'm out. There was no breaking point. There was no provoking him. The enemy would have loved for him to respond out of his own self-interest, his own self-preservation. Because it would have been less than love and it would have never made the impact on the people that it made when they saw that he actually believed this thing and loved his own life, not unto death. He's not provoked. He doesn't take into account a wrong suffering. He doesn't look at heaven indignantly and say, this is the thanks I get for preaching the gospel. This is the thanks I get for living a godly life, for surrendering my life to you. I give and give and give and give. I heal the sick. I cast out demons. I do all these things. He was a man who was acting in the, in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. It said that he was performing signs and wonders. I perform signs and wonders. I, I, I am obedient to you, God. And this is the thanks I get. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He just lets the stones come, realizing... I don't know what they're doing. They don't see what I see. If they saw what I saw, they'd never throw those stones. Maybe one day they will. To that end, I live my life. Come on, how many stones would it take before we would decide, okay, that's enough? You shouldn't talk to people and Starts out good. Well, you know, this, 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 and I, and I, and I, and then all of a sudden, but then, and now, and I don't know how much, and all these, and we find these things that come to our mouth so easily that sound so silly when we hold them up to the light of a man, Stephen's example. 
See, I, I would use Jesus as our example because he's our example in all things. But somehow the devil's done a great job of convincing people within the church that that's for Jesus. But that excuse doesn't work when it's Stephen. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things. All things, even to the place of being martyred for what he was doing. And think about this. Think about how easily it would, easy it would be for Stephen to become offended because all he's doing is what God's called him to do. God, all I've done is what you've asked me to do, and this is the response I get. Well, you know, I'm only human. How long can I? Never find that question on Stephen's lips. Never find that permission in the life of Jesus. Why would we ever find it in ours? Well, this is challenging me. This is, like, this is what challenges me all the time. It's this, this life that this man lived and then said, follow me. I'm sure he loves that we gather and sing to him, but he said, follow me. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures most things. See how silly that sounds. See, it'd be so easy if it said endures most things. Because then we could fit our favorite thing that was done into the category that's not covered by most. Because whatever's been done to me is the biggest deal and the biggest thing that's ever been done. It's the truth get people together in a room and start comparing stories and everybody's story is the worst because it's the one that happened to them. And none of that matters when we hold it up to the standard of love. None. And then Jesus said, by this they'll know that you're my disciples by your by your patience by your kindness and your lack of jealousy, by the fact that you don't brag, you're not arrogant, you don't act becomingly, you're not seeking your own, you're not provoked, you don't take into account a wrong suffered, you don't rejoice in unrighteousness, you rejoice with the truth, you bear all things, you believe all things, you hope all things, and you endure all things. By this, the world will know that you're my disciples. Because that's the list of description that we have. Well, I'm sure there's way more to it than just that, but there's the one we actually have. Let's start with the one we have. Make sure we're hitting all those marks before we actually start thinking about the other ones that maybe could be put onto that list. This is not about like a do performance thing. This is the saying, if this is what he's called me to, and this is what I see in the life of Jesus, and this is what I see in the life of Stephen, then that means that's possible for me if I yield myself to the leading and guiding of the Spirit, and I allow and I give myself to him, and I make him my Lord. That's why Peter was preaching to them. He says, now you see this Christ whom you crucified is both Savior. That means he died for your sins to bring you to that place of salvation and Lord, meaning now he, he actually deserves us to be, make him our Lord. Lord means master, means I don't get a vote. And then Jesus comes and says, okay, I'll take that when you offer to make me your Lord. And here's what I give you, a new command I give you. But it's really an old one. Love God. All your heart, mind, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. Love. Take this list. Filter your life through that. Let that purify you. Till all that's left is love. You'll be doing all right. God, I thank you for your word. 
I thank you that you're refining and purifying me, God, and us as, as we learn and, and, and seek you out. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and you'd make these things so real to us, God, that you would remove every bit of wiggle room that we've given ourselves to insert a comma and a but. God, thank you that we would settle these things in our hearts so that we're not trying to find you in the middle of the accusation. That we would set our face on you and give you our yes and keep that yes no matter what would come. See, I believe that Stephen wasn't trying to figure out if it was worth it to give his life for these people in the moment when they started to pick up stones. I don't think you can find it in that moment. I think he had determined that long before he began to speak, so now this was just an extension of his yes. See, you can, you can try to figure out how to sail in a storm. You know the best place to figure out how to sail? It's in a quiet little cove. And then what's learned in the cove is proven in the raging sea. You can try to find out what love looks like in a moment when you're being attacked and your heart wants to respond in every other way. Or you can seek out love in the quiet times so that when you're faced with something, your response flows from who you've become, not from something you know. You can become this thing. Stephen wasn't going, wait a minute, shoot, they're going to stone me. What is the loving thing to do? I want to run. I want to do this. What would love do? It's okay. Listen, if that's where you're at, look, that's better than ignoring love and just acting in what's in your heart. But I promise you there's a better way to live where you can actually have it already settled in your heart so that when those opportunities come, your response is actually from who you are, not from something you know. You're not trying to figure it out in the moment. You're allowing what's already been figured out to flow from you. So your response looks like him. God, I just thank you for that. I thank you for that ability to change, God, that you alone can change our hearts, Father. You said, I'll, I'll take their heart of stone from them. I'll give them a heart of flesh, and I'll write my law upon their heart, and their heart will be to know me. And God is love. Our heart would be to know love. God, I thank you that you're committed to transforming us into the image of your Son, who is love into the image of love so that when people look at us, they see love. Not just when they're loving us. Jesus said that. I know I keep interrupting my prayer. <laughs> Listen, God's okay with it. He's all right. Listen, Jesus said, what good is it if you love those who love you in return? Even the Gentiles, even the tax collectors, what, depending on the version, do that. But I say love your enemies. What's he saying? He's saying, Listen, it's so easy to love people that love you. It's so, that requires nothing. Requires nothing. He said, even the ones that don't know God as Father, even the ones who aren't being led by the Spirit of God, even the ones who haven't bent their knee to the name of Jesus and made Him Lord, even they do that. But you, I call you to a higher standard. Because you're supposed to be love, which means there should be no other response possible. So even when someone mistreats you, what should come from you? should look the same as what comes from you when somebody treats you well. It should be love. Now, I'm not saying it looks the same in every situation. I'm saying the motivation for what comes out of you should come from the same motivation, whether someone's mistreating you or treating you well, and it should be loving them. What does that look like in that moment? God, I thank you for that. I thank you we can become this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.